Hello, my name's Richard Cox, and I'm joined by my friend Nicole Schnackenberg today. Nicole and I run a body image support group together online and occasionally do things in the real world. And Nicole is also the author of this book, False Bodies, True Selves, Moving Beyond Appearance-Focused Identity Scores and Returning to the True Self. So we thought it would be a good idea. Um, I, I thought it would be a good idea and pushed Nicole into it. Attempted uh, something of an interview around the themes of the book. So good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Um, this is a very comprehensive book, but if you were to surmise it as a starting point, how would you do that? Um, so to kind of encapsulate, I guess, what I was wanting to write about and communicate, um, it's around this idea of the true self, this idea that we come into the world as our true selves. And this true self is, is spontaneous. It knows itself to be good. It knows itself to be loving and peaceful. And, you know, it's who we truly are. And it can happen through life that this true self is perhaps not felt to be met with um, acceptance, you know, not felt to be embraced, um, either by the self or by others. Not by the true self, though. True self always embraces true self, of course. Um, and then this false self rises up that somehow appears to more readily meet the demands of others. You know, as, as babies in particular, we need other people to love us um, because we need them firstly to feed us and to make sure we're warm and you know, to meet our basic needs. Um, but also because we're wired for love. Um, and in appearance-focused identity struggles, which is a bit of a clunky term. Um, I was trying to find a better way of saying body image because I think body image has been used a lot in all sorts of ways. Um, and I still don't feel I've, I've got the right phrasing, but something about when the identity of the self is pinned on in some way to the physical appearance. And I think perhaps if we get the sense that our true self isn't loving, we, we look for a way to, to make ourselves more loving or we become a false self that would appear to, to engender or at least the hope that we might become more loving. And I think in an appearance-obsessed society, um, what can happen is that we look for a way to be loving and society would seem to suggest we can become more loving by changing our appearance. Um, you know, either by, um, particularly if we're female, losing weight, or um, if we're men, perhaps becoming toned or muscular, or you know, there's all sorts of notions around clear skin and straight teeth and this kind of hair. And, and I think it's very much sold as if you um, alter your appearance in this way, or if you amend yourself in this way, and it's very much taken that the appearance is the self. Um, that you'll be more lovable. I think it boils down to that. Mm -hmm. um, so in this book, I guess I was trying to explore this notion of um, diagnoses like um, eating disorders and so like anorexia and bulimia and, and others and, and body dysmorphic disorder as well and other identity focused struggles. Um, I was exploring this idea that maybe actually they're not about appearance at all. Maybe they're about this burying of the true self. Mm -hmm. And the book, it's 
very comprehensive, but built around a core of your own experience mm. of going through these kind of struggles, the loss of the true self and the return to it through various means. Could you talk us through maybe the start of that journey, how you came to um, suffer with some of these conditions yourself? Yes. Um, I guess it's a long story. Um, so, yeah, stop me at any point and I'll try to get the important bits. Um, and I guess my story begins as all of our stories begin. Um, you know, before I was even born, we're not born into a vacuum. And there had been a lot of trauma in my parents' um, upbringing. Um, and they were very young when they had me and hadn't worked through some of this trauma. Um, I think it's really important also to mention that this is not, you know, not about blame, but acknowledgement. I guess, you know, for years I just thought everything was down to me and me alone. But of course, there are lots of societal and, and family based um, underpinnings at the same time. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really hard, I think, because a lot of these struggles are set before we can have memory of them or the stage is set for them. So I can't remember being a little baby and, you know, feeling like I couldn't um, be my true self. Um, but I now, you know, imagine through having lots of family therapy and also talking to my family and a lot of self-exploration and, and exploration with my family, um, that absolutely my true self probably was not acceptable. Um, you know, because, you know, my poor parents had had all these struggles themselves. Um, how to contain my difficult emotions, how to, to deal with me if I cried. You know, it's a, big, um, it's a big part of our family script that oh, Nicole was a really good baby. She never, never cried. Um, and I'm sure I did cry. Um, you know, when I came out of the womb, we all cry unless there's a big problem when we come out of the womb. But... Um, I'm pretty sure I also learned not to cry and to squash all my emotions down and to ignore them and to get cut off really from the lived sense of my emotions in my body. Um, so, and that kind of worked through my childhood, kind of. Um, I did struggle with, you know, things like insomnia and I was bullied a lot because I guess I was just such a, an easy target because my self-esteem was very low and I, I kind of squashed down any difficult emotions constantly so I never fought back in any way. Um, but to the outside eye it would have seemed that you know our family was kind of managed you know we're kind of doing okay but probably you'd have said you know we were a very happy family and, and in many ways we were you know my parents are incredibly um, loving and, and we had many many happy times of course. Um, but I kind of got to my, um, you know, that lovely bit where we tip into or begin to tip into adolescence and emotions just don't get stuffed down so easily in adolescence. That's my experience. Um, and I understand it to be the experience of many others, this idea that you kind of get to adolescence and your emotions start kind of seeping out everywhere. Um, and this was incredibly terrifying to me because I thought... I wasn't allowed to be angry, I wasn't allowed to be sad, you know, I had to constantly paint a smile on my face and constantly have to be the good girl and everything to be okay. Um, and at this point, I think I felt incredibly unlovable, but I didn't really know why. 
I just felt like I was some kind of monster, really. Um, I think when we squash our true self down for so long and in such a, a strong way, it can begin to lose a sense of who we are. And I was just thinking, I'm trying so hard to be good. I'm trying so hard to be happy and loving and, and caring and kind. And yet, um, certain core people in my life just seem to continue to find me quite difficult to love. Um, so, um, I began to, you know, and a lot of this is unconscious, but I think I did sort of scan to see ways I could make myself more lovable. You know, I tried getting really good academic grades, but that didn't seem to please enough. And I tried this and I tried that. Um, but I also very strongly got the message that one way I could become more lovable was to, um, to lose weight. Um, you know, it was, um, so by now we're in sort of the mid nineties and it was very much, um, you know, the diets were everywhere and aerobics classes everywhere. And, um, and certainly, you know, my mother had been drawn into some of that. Um, and certainly my friends at school. And so I thought, I thought maybe, you know, if I lost weight, I'd become more lovable, more acceptable. Um, whilst tangentially also feeling that I didn't really deserve to eat anyway because I was this, this kind of a monster that didn't deserve nice things. Um, so I did begin to starve myself um, and then yeah, ended up in psychiatric treatment uh, as an inpatient um, just around the time of my 14th birthday. Um, and then kind of ended up on this um, kind of revolving door of going into hospital, gaining weight coming out, losing weight and going back into hospital and becoming very stuck in that cycle for part of my, my teenage years. So that's kind of the beginning of the story. Sure. And as I understand it, um, you, I don't know how to put it, got, got to grips with the eating in a way that you were physically stable. Mm. Um, but you've told me that that was in some ways the more difficult time mm. when it wasn't manifesting in that way. And then later you developed body dysmorphic disorder mm. um, in a, is that, is that a correct assessment or overview of the following years? Yes, um, you're right. I did end up with a diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder. I think what happened was after many years of this kind of cycle of self-salvation, absolutely um, just devastating my family. I think it's just as hard to watch this as it is to do it if not harder and my poor family went through hell um, and I suppose I got to a certain point and I realized I, mean, I was consumed by guilt for a start and I'm still working through some of that guilt um, but you know I realized it, it wasn't working you know me starving myself was not making me more lovable it wasn't connecting me more strongly to my mother it wasn't it actually taken me further away from all of those things um, and I guess I've been told repeatedly that you need to fight this you need to manage this um, so I tried and I tried to fight it and I tried to manage it and I stuck to my meal plan and I stopped over exercising and I you know if a difficult thought would come into my head or a compulsion to do something to self-harm um, you know I would push that down and I'd squash it down and I'd ignore it and I'd try to continue with my life um, and it meant I could have a life 
outside of hospital, which was nice. Um, but I didn't feel any different on the inside. I still felt like this kind of wooden puppet with sort of dead from the neck down and no feelings. And I still hated myself. That hadn't changed at all. Um, and I think so often, Richard, with, with struggles in life, um, you know, if the root of them isn't um, uncovered and embraced, and maybe that's something we can talk yeah, sure. more about, um, then, it, you know, it does just move. And I just think my focus moved from my weight to my facial skin. I became very obsessed with my facial skin and ended up then with a diagnosis of BTD because I was, you know, didn't feel any different inside. Yeah, that, that's what I wanted to get at, really, from, so from the outside looking in, um, it might have appeared that the worst was over. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But from the inside out, that's, that's not the case, and it re-manifests in some way. So um, moving on then, um, you've mentioned this idea of the true self and recovering that as the, the path to healing for you. Um, what did that, how did you come across that kind of concept, and what did that look like for you when you started to engage with it? Thank you. Um, so maybe it's good to mention that I'd kind of, I'd learned to meditate when I was 10. Um, I was very fortunate to have been um, receiving some instruction um, in, it, it was a prayer kind of evening that I went to every week, but actually um, a lot of it was centered around meditation and I'd really continued that. Um, and I do feel it was my saving grace throughout those years. So it was always something um, that had supported me in my journey, if you like. Um, and then I think a big turning point for me was, um, you know, around this time when I'd stopped actively starving myself, I'd become quite obsessed with my facial skin, but also was trying to manage that and was doing things like covering the mirrors up in the house and using a lot of concealer and just trying to manage all those difficult feelings. Um, I was working in a school for children with special needs um, who were often very distressed and would self-harm and harm others. And I would just daily go home thinking, how do I reach these children? What can I what can I do? You know, I'm trying all these strategies and educational plans and, um, and they're so sad and they're so out of their body and they, they're so pained. Um, and I was meditating one Sunday afternoon, I remember it very clearly, and this idea of um, yoga came to me that maybe I could use, or I could, yeah, use yoga to support them because I'd heard that people had found this very calming and centering. Um, so I booked a flight to Texas where they were doing some training in this and off I went. Um, and little did I know that it would be, um, you know, so transformative for me. And I think what it, what it did for me in particular, I mean, there were lots of things, but what it did for me in particular was it began to reconnect me to this body that I totally disconnected from. Um, so, you know, is it, it's, it's a common um, understanding that people with a lot of these diagnoses, so anorexia, bulimia, and body dysmorphic disorder, eating disorders not otherwise specified, and others um, have very poor interoceptive awareness. They are disconnected from the feelings of the body. And that's so important because these feelings, these, you know, our, our heart rate and our breathing rate and all the rest of it um, 
are they are the lived expression of our emotions so I was cut off from my emotions essentially I didn't know what I felt I felt dead inside to be honest with you and yoga um, and I think any mindful movement that brings the the breath and the body together um, can begin to awaken some of that and it was like I suddenly began to feel my body from the neck down and I thought wow I'm alive and is this I remember thinking you know oh my goodness is this how it feels to feel alive I felt so just dead for ages um, and this feeling of aliveness um, which is actually how Donald Winnicott who came up with this theory of the true self and the full self that's how he actually describes the true self he says it's a spontaneous lived sense of aliveness um, so I came home from that training feeling alive and thinking and feeling very excited and continuing my yoga practice and then thinking or feeling an invitation from life to really really continue to embrace this aliveness and to seek it out and I thought well there's something about emotions here there's something about allowing the darkness allowing the shadows um, there's something about surrender and I guess then the invitation to me felt to be to dive into all of these things to dive into my emotions to dive into my fears to embrace my fears to embrace the shadows um, and to see what I found out um, and I suppose that's the beginning of, of sort of that part of the journey. And just, um, I might come back to that in a second, but just to drill into this idea of a true self um, for a moment. Um, when you describe the true self as being um, loving and accepting and the sense of aliveness, I can picture there may be people watching this who think, well, I'm not sure my true self is like that. Mm -hmm. My true self might be average to rotten or something. <laughs> um, so um, you mentioned Winnicott, but that when, when you're talking about the, this true self, um, you also refer to Eastern spirituality mm -hmm. in the book um, and the self-inquiry practices. So I don't know um, if, it's, if Winnicott is pointed to this but you're you're referring to a kind of spiritual sense of self or a transpersonal i think is the term that's used mm -hmm. in the book are those two spiritual and transpersonal are they synonymous terms and could you just talk about how you see that maybe of course um thank you um certainly that's how i understand the true self um i'd love to have dinner with winnicott and see what he thought i think he was very much thinking I do think he was also thinking about our innate selfness um, in terms of a connection existing between all of life. Um, and Jung spoke about this as well, his self with a capital S, a self that kind of goes beyond the confines of the physical body in some way. Um, I guess for me, the true self is very much the one self. Um, so this idea that there is this idea that consciousness it expresses itself, that the whole of life is the play of consciousness and that consciousness in some ways in the business of, of knowing itself, 
and is some way in the business of waking up to itself and in some way is in the business of having the absolute joy of, of knowing um, itself. Um, and I think a dichotomy needs to exist for that to happen because, of course, if, if self is all there is, how can self look back on self and say, oh, there I am? Um, so I guess my experience of life is that it's just self playing out in all these different ways, in these different embodiments and different experiences. Um, and therefore it's all the same self, it's the same consciousness and it's the same awareness in all of us. Um, you know, and that, that the love and the peace and the spontaneity in me is absolutely unequivocally the same as the love and the peace and the spontaneity in you. There is no divide between that. Um, and I guess the practice of self-inquiry in some ways is about um, dropping everything that isn't the self and discovering that everything that isn't the self isn't, just isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and this for me was, um, was truly um, astounding because I thought I was a monster. You know, when you talk about sensing that the self might be rotten, I thought I was like worse than rotten. Um, and yet when I remained as the awareness behind the thoughts, so I realized, okay, I'm having thoughts who is, who, is, who is it that listens? Who is it that, that observes the thoughts? And I'm, I have a mind, but who is it that knows it has a mind? Who is that? And I have this body and I see it in the mirror and I'm not very delighted with it, or I wasn't at that time. Um, but who is it that perceives that body? If, if there's something perceiving the body, I can't be that body. The I has to be somehow separate. And kind of back and back and back, and it's very much... Um, it almost feels silly to talk about it because it's not a word thing. Um, it's, it felt to me like literally within a nanosecond, I had this realization that I, not just the realization, the absolute sense and the experience of being the awareness behind all of these things and that being who I truly am and that being love and spontaneity and peace and joy. Um, and then whilst their mind does what mind does and tries to keep us safe and, and throws up all sorts of things and, and I now find I can return to that sense um, and, and therefore, you know, I look in the mirror and I see a body, but, you know, if it changes in some way physically, it's just changing It's because, it's, you know, it's just the body in the same way as my thoughts um, change and develop and regress all the time but, but they're just thoughts yeah i suppose it would be um almost obvious to say this connection with the true self this transcendent sense of self changes your very paradigm about what beauty is that it's not something that's arising from having your cheekbones in a certain place or mm -hmm. a symmetry on your face but rather it's this deep quality coming through us Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the true self, the self is beautiful and knows itself to be beautiful. And the self is, you know, the true self is loving and knows itself to be loving. And then it's a very different experience looking in the mirror because you're looking out, you know, as the awareness towards awareness. Um, and then actually every expre expression becomes very beautiful because it is just this consciousness playing itself out. And there's that kind of discriminatory sense is gone. You know, the discriminatory sense of, okay, I have a few spots today. That's bad. 
it just it vanishes because it's neither good nor bad it's just it's just the play of you know it's just life life being life that's all it is um okay um you've obviously written the book more than just to tell your story but with the hope that this approach that you've um discovered and adopted can be helpful to other people it's something that's accessible to other people it's not some deep mystical esoteric thing you need to devote your life to and go off to a monastery so um what would you say about that if uh, people are watching the video and thinking this is great but i don't know if it's something that's accessible to me how how do you find these practices accessible and what would you say to someone who's got those kind of thoughts going on thank you um and i think you're right i think my only or my deepest desire for the book was that you know it may support someone for their journey not to take so long and it's not about disregarding the journey because you know i think these shadows are an invitation um and it is an invitation for self to know self and therefore it's a beautiful invitation it looks pretty awful at the time um but isn't ultimately and i do think there's nothing complicated about it in fact it's the most simple thing in the world the most simple thing because we're not talking about following a particular dogma or teaching or needing to read lots of books or to meditate for 10 hours a day or join the ashram or i don't know whatever it is um dance around a fire at midnight in a certain way um, yeah, well, <laughs> we'll do that if it you know if that if that supports you um, and I'm not, there's nothing wrong with any of those practices um i went to a chakra dancing workshop yesterday and it was amazing and but it you know it's it doesn't have to be any of those things i think it's it's our innate i don't know the word i'm thinking of words like trajectory journey i think it's just innate to us that or you know that the self will wake up to the self and that can happen in a myriad of different ways but i do think it can be invited and i think that's all it is is an invitation and for me the key things were and they're very simple things really um allowing and embracing everything all the emotions all the the darkness that i felt to be within me and outside of me all the fears truly embracing them which is of course not the easiest of things but in some ways it is the easiest of things it's just allowing allowing fighting is the hard bit Mm. um and just you know either occasionally or setting aside time for it stepping back into that awareness of what's occurring and what's unfolding um i think self wants to know self so i don't think it's a difficult and complicated thing because it's organic and it's natural and it's desired and even if it seems to us on the surface of things that we don't desire it or that we're afraid of it or that it's not useful to us and i do remember thinking um particularly when i was struggling that sort of spending time in meditation or even doing nice things like going for a walk in nature was very indulgent and I didn't deserve them. Um, when I allowed myself those things, I definitely moved towards a lived sense of 
um, something beyond a monster, something good and lovely inside. Thank you, Nicole. Um, I would like to throw one final question in that just occurred to me uh, earlier on when we were talking and when you were talking about your family. And I don't think for anyone, hardly, these struggles arise in total isolation. Um, they arise in a family dynamic. And you've written about that, how it was kind of a journey for all of you that um, led to a wider sense of healing and connection. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm thinking that there'll, there'll be people watching this who um, struggle with their own family connections. Either they're not understood by their family or they don't feel embraced in some way. And I just wonder if you could um, speak to that from your own perspective to, to finish off. Of course. Um, thank you. I think it's a great question. Um, and I guess also, and again, this is just my sense, um, that I have a sense that we choose the parents, that we, the particular expression of ourselves comes into in this particular life. And I think as painful as our connections with people can be, um, they're absolutely a, a vehicle towards this kind of sense of um, aliveness and, and joy and peace. Um, and I think, I think many sages and mystics have, have, have said this, you know, when we change, everything changes. Um, and I had tried for many years to try and almost force a deeper connection. And a lot of my self-salvation and self-harm had been about trying to, to make this connection. Um, you know, to try and become something that was more lovable so that me and my mum in particular could, could connect in a way I hadn't felt we'd been able to. Um, but at the core of that was this sense of, well, on the surface level that I needed my mother's love or that I needed the love of, of my family. And then beyond that, then the fear that I was unlovable. Um, and just, you know, just for me, um, when I had this experience of, oh my goodness, I'm totally lovable. I'm like, totally lovable, fancy that. Um, then at that moment, it, it doesn't matter too much. It doesn't mean that I loved my mother every, any less. Um, in fact, probably the love I could then feel and express to her was a lot bigger because it wasn't kind of buried under all this layer of need and expectation. Um, but then when I found I could come to my mother as my true spontaneous self that, you know, did things that my mum probably didn't approve of and behaved in ways that she probably didn't think were the best ways. Um, that she was able to also meet that, you know, authenticity um, begets authenticity, I think. Um, and then it, I really felt that, and my mum, you know, if she was here, I imagine she would say the same thing, and we've discussed this a bit. Um, you know, it was an invitation for her also just to be unabashedly who she was and to do all the things that perhaps she'd been suppressing. And then we met in that place of let's just be who we are and, and even being able to laugh about the things that we didn't agree with or like about each other. Um, but the core understanding being that, you know, it was all, it was all good and it was all okay. Um, and our relationship is very much transformed. Um, and it doesn't look the way I would have written down I would like it to have looked as a teenager, or it doesn't look the way um, 
other people might say was the perfect mother-daughter relationship to look but for us it looks in such a way that we're able to um to love and to be loved without um mixing our needs up and our expectations up with that love i can be who i am and she can be who she is. Yeah. okay thank you very much indeed for the conversation to come on yeah um, i'm hopeful we can do further things like this in the future um as i mentioned nicole and i run an online group we occasionally do events in the, the real world too so i'll put a link to the details for that beneath and please do get in touch if you'd like to be informed and um yeah come along and meet us so thanks again nicole and uh we'll speak soon thank you thank you richard